Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. It is my great joy this morning to be able to speak to you here at Balham. It's just us in the room, really. There's a few people online, but Bastien and Westside are doing their own thing. So we're just, it's just us. Um, I get to share one of my favorite stories with you this morning. We're looking in our, at the last part of our Signpost to Jesus series. And I'm going to be reading about it from N.T. Wright's translation, And you'll find this in a little book about John's gospel. Uh, Tom Wright, as he's also known, is one of the world's greatest New Testament theologians. And he has a whole series of these little books covering every book of the New Testament. So if you'd like to read your Bible a little more often and you'd like to understand it a little better, can I encourage you to pick up one of these? You won't regret it. This is the last in our series on signposts to Jesus. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John, who has given us seven specific signs or miracles that point beyond the story that they are telling to something about Jesus' identity and mission. Today, we're going to look at the last of those signs, which sits in the middle of John's Gospel at a sort of turning point. And it includes an extraordinary statement about and from Jesus. So we're going to be taking a look at that and asking ourselves, what could it possibly have to do with us today? Uh, someone set the uh, count time clock back to so we're all right, we're keeping on track. They'd started at the beginning of the prayer time, so I thought I wasn't going to have enough time, but we're all good. <laughs> like the other Gospels, this book told the early church the epic narrative of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We've heard some of these stories over the past few weeks, including turning water into wine, healing the sick, and walking on water. Our story today is about raising the dead. Sorry, spoiler alert. But it is also about timing. And the question of timing has been hanging around in the background in John's Gospel since that first miracle at the wedding in Cana. Jesus keeps saying to people, my time has not yet come. This would seem to suggest that Jesus is keeping time in a different way to those around him, that there is an unseen schedule at work here, a sort of inescapable destiny held in tension with an intentional delay, suggesting that God's sense of timing might be different from yours and mine. So what about us? How's your relationship with time Most of us recognize that if something matters to us, it's worth taking time over. That whatever's good and beautiful and true usually takes time. Building communities like this one takes time. Raising children takes time. Making friends takes time. Developing a career takes time. Becoming like Jesus takes time. But this often jars with the world in which we live. Instead, our lives are often shaped by this sense of urgency. And whatever stage of life that we're at, there's often a sense that there's more that we could be doing to catch up or keep up with the world around us. 
And whilst the technology at our fingertips has given us extraordinary opportunities to manage our time, it has also turned our world upside down and our sense of timing inside out. We've become used to getting what we want when we want it. But what if God moves more slowly? You see, for more than 400 years before the time of Jesus, expectations have been growing amongst the people of the Bible that God would come again to fulfill the promises that he had once made, that a day would come when the rule and reign of his heavenly kingdom would again be seen on the earth in a way that they had only dreamt of. John writes about this very differently from the other gospel writers, but his aim is the same that his first readers and listeners would know that Jesus was the one they had been waiting for, that he was their coming king, that he was their Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And John is writing to provoke us to consider this. John is saying, I've picked seven signs for you, these miracles. Take a look at them. Listen to the claims that Jesus made. I've picked seven of them. Take your time, examine the life and the word and the works of this man, Jesus, and see if he isn't the one that you have been waiting for. We know that many did, that many were curious and some were convinced. In chapter 6, after feeding the crowd the miraculous multiplication of food, Jesus was at the height of his popularity, so much so that they tried to make him king by force. Hurry up, Jesus. And yet by chapter 10, popularity had turned to tension and even violence. And there's a growing sense that what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's come to do is going to cause trouble. But they're still saying, get to the point, Jesus. Hurry up. So how does Jesus respond? He withdraws from the crowds around Jerusalem and heads to an area about two days away to the other side of the River Jordan, near the top right corner of the Dead Sea, according to our map. And so, finally, begins our story. It is about three siblings, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, who are well known among Jesus' followers. They are people he knows and loves, people who consider him their teacher and friend, and who know him well enough to believe he will come when they tell him that they are in need. We're going to read this story in sections, and the first part is found in chapter 11, verses 1 to 16. So if you've got Bibles, you want to look it up on your phone, it'll be up on the screen, John 11, verses 1 to 16. There was a man in Bethany named Lazarus, and he became ill. Bethany in Judea was the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the Mary who anointed the Lord with myrrh and wiped his feet with her hair. Lazarus, who was ill, was her brother. So the sisters sent messengers to Jesus. Master, they said, the man you love is ill. When Jesus got the message, he said, this illness won't lead to death. It's about the glory of God. The Son of God will be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, Jesus stayed where he was to begin with for two days. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go back to Judea. Teacher, replied the disciples, the Judeans are trying to stone you just now. Surely you don't want to go back there. There are 12 hours in the day, aren't there? Replied Jesus. 
If you walk in the day, you won't trip up because you'll see the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, they will trip up because there is no light in them. When he had said this, Jesus added, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. Master, replied the disciples, if he's asleep, he'll be all right. They thought he was referring to ordinary sleep, but Jesus had in fact been speaking of his death. Then Jesus spoke to them plainly. Lazarus, he said, is dead. Actually, I'm glad I wasn't there for your sakes. It will help your faith. But let's go to him. Thomas, whose name was the twin, addressed the other disciples. Let's go too, he said. We may as well die with him. You've got to love Thomas, right? <laughs> so why does Jesus delay? Why does he wait? I mean, this has got to be one of the most, you know, mysterious little corner of Scripture where we're asking ourselves why. It makes no sense. It's not because he doesn't care. We know he loves this family. And Jesus didn't need to go at all. He could have healed him from a distance. But there's some sense in his own words of a greater purpose or something else going on here altogether. An obvious suggestion would be that Jesus has been praying. Praying for Lazarus, perhaps, or praying about his own life and the direction it's taking, as though somehow the two are connected. And prayer is rarely a quick fix, is it? Prayer takes time. But there are also very pragmatic reasons for not going to Bethany. Jesus has withdrawn from an area around Jerusalem for a reason. Bethany is a lot closer to where the hostility against him has been growing. And a dramatic healing in this location may draw the crowds again for all the wrong reasons. However, after two days, something has changed. And though his disciples remind him of the dangers of getting that close to Jerusalem, it's time to go. This wasn't about his own safety. This was a matter of timing. Poor timing, as far as the family are concerned, but some other sense of timing, as far as Jesus is concerned. It seems God moves slowly. Let's take a look at verses 17 to 27. So when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, the two days that Jesus waited and the two days that it probably took to travel there. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Many of the Judeans had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus had arrived, she went to meet him. Mary, meanwhile, stayed sitting at home. Master, said Martha to Jesus, if only you'd been here then my brother wouldn't have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Your brother will rise again, replied Jesus. I know he'll rise again, said Martha, in the resurrection on the last day. I am the resurrection and the life, replied Jesus. Anyone who believes in me will live, even if they die. And anyone who lives and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this? Yes, Master, she said, this is what I've come to believe, that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who was to come into the world. None of us knows how we will respond when grief hits us. You may think you recognize these women from another story in Luke 10. In that story, 
Mary sat at Jesus' feet, listening and learning, whilst Martha was busy getting things done and complaining about her sister not doing anything useful. Perhaps that was simply because Martha was a woman of action, a doer, rather than a sitter. Because here, she is first out the gate, whereas Mary stays at home. We can only assume that Martha is heartbroken, that she has been waiting for Jesus to come, that she has watched her brother get sick and fade away until he died. But now Jesus is here, and she is confident of being seen and heard in his presence. She brings him her complaint, and why wouldn't she? She knows this man well, because this is not the first woman that Jesus gives attention agency, and voice. From the woman at the well discussing politics and theology with Jesus before bringing revival to her town, to the first resurrection encounter of Mary Magdalene, who becomes the apostle to the apostles. Jesus takes everyone seriously. And so he makes time for Martha. They speak together of a future resurrection, a time when God would raise his people from the dead to new life, something that her people believed would be true for them at the end of time, on that future day when God would come again, judging evil, restoring creation under his eternal kingship. This is the future kind of resurrection that Martha believes in, a shared vision of a new heaven and a new earth, a new day coming, one day. But Jesus says to her, no, Martha, I am the resurrection. I am that future day. All that was promised, all that is still to come is present in me. I am a foretaste of that future. I am the kingdom come. Heaven has come to earth here. Eternal life starts now. We hear those claims in retrospect. We know how the story ends, but we still might not know what to do with them because most of the time it doesn't seem that way, does it? It doesn't seem as though God has come. And if he has, he's just not moving fast enough. But how does Martha respond? She responds with an exceptional declaration that is matched only by Peter's great confession in Matthew 11. This is Martha's confession of faith. She knows her scriptures. She's not spent all her time in the kitchen. And in the midst of her grief, she has come to a deeply personal and theologically significant understanding about who this man in front of her really is. It is Martha who says the words that John has been hoping for, that is the destination that all these signs have been pointing to. Martha says, yes, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. Let's take a look at verses 28 to 37. With these words, Martha went back and called her sister Mary. The teacher has come, she said to her privately, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard that, she got up quickly and she went to him. Jesus hadn't got, yet got to the village. He was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Judeans who were in the house with Mary, consoling her, saw her get up quickly and go out. 
They guessed that she was going to the tomb to weep there, and they followed her. When Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell down at his feet. Master, she said, if only you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Judeans who had come with her crying, he was deeply stirred in his spirit and very troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Master, they said, come and see. Jesus burst into tears. Look, said the Judeans, see how much he loved him. Well, yes, some of them said, but he opened the eyes of a blind man, didn't he? Couldn't he have done something to stop this fellow from dying? Martha's gone back home after speaking to Jesus and lets Mary know that Jesus is waiting for her. Mary has taken her time up until now, and that's okay. She's been waiting for Jesus, but now she's ready to see him. And she runs out and she falls at Jesus' feet as if to worship. But like Martha, she says the words that I'm guessing many of us have said. If you've ever lost someone, if you've ever wrestled with an unfathomable, unanswered prayer, if you had been there, if you had only done that, if you had only heard me, this would never have happened it is an uncomfortable mixture of faith and disbelief. Jesus, I know you could have prevented this loss, and yet you didn't. I'm broken with doubt and confusion, and yet here I am at your feet again, because where else would I go? Mary brings all of this to Jesus. Death is life's only certainty, of course. We cannot escape it. And learning to live with any kind of loss is one of the hardest things we will ever have to do. Grief is how we experience that. It is a combination of exhaustion, anger, sadness, denial, and disbelief, which many of us carry, even as we get up and go on with life. And our world has little time for that kind of experience because grief moves very slowly and there is no hurrying Jesus. In that moment of grief, he is fully present. He sees Mary's tears. Perhaps it is foreshadowing another Mary who will weep by his tomb and Jesus weeps with her. In most translations, there are just two words that describe this moment. And these two words, Jesus wept, are two of the most profound and beautiful words, I think, ever written. Because not every sickness will end in healing, and not every death will end in resurrection. In this world, death and disappointment will come to all of us sooner or later. But in Jesus, God has also come. And he weeps beside us, beside every grave. Death may still be final, but it is not the final word. Let's take a look at verses 38 to 44. 
Jesus was once again deeply troubled within himself. He came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was placed in front of it. Take away the stone, said Jesus. But master, said Martha, the dead man's sister, there'll be a smell. It is the fourth day. Didn't I tell you, said Jesus, that if you believed, you would see God's glory? So they took the stone away. Jesus lifted up his eyes. Thank you, Father, he said, for hearing me. I know you always hear me, but I've said this because of the crowd standing around so that they may believe that you have sent me. And with those words, he gave a loud shout, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. He was tied up hand and foot with strips of linen, and his face was wrapped in a cloth. Untie him, Jesus said, and let him go. In front of a crowd of people, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, restores him to life again after four days, gives him back to his grieving sisters. It is the clearest sign to all of those watching and listening and following that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the giver of life. He is greater than death. He is the one they have been waiting for. There must have been an incredible sense of relief, of shock, of joy, of just Wonderful confusion. But is this miracle the pinnacle of John's seven signs? Jesus' moment of greatest triumph? His moment of crowning glory? No. If you read the rest of this chapter, you'll see that according to John, this is the moment when Jesus' own death warrant is sealed. In just a few chapters after that, Jesus will go to the cross and die the death of a slave. The crown on his head, the crown of this king, will be a crown of thorns. And at the time, nobody thought him a hero. Nobody thought his death had been a splendid victory, a triumphant martyrdom. Death, it seemed, had won, as it always did. In the days immediately after Jesus' death, that would have been all his followers knew. How many of them, other than Martha, had had this resurrection conversation with him? And did she, could she, have really understood what it meant? Even so, who would raise Jesus from the dead? But that was the claim of the early church, that who Jesus was and what had happened to him through crucifixion and resurrection was different, that anything had come before and it changes everything. Death would come again to Lazarus, of course, because raising Lazarus was just the sign It was not the point. Jesus' death and resurrection was something else. Thousands upon thousands were crucified by the Romans. We don't remember their names. And resurrection from the dead wasn't an original claim for ancient gods or Roman emperors. But for Jesus, it was a claim about a new kind of life for everyone, a new beginning, the first of a new creation. The Apostle Paul calls it the first of a new humanity. So what does that mean for us? There is a sort of proximity in this story to Jesus and those incredible claims that perhaps you feel like you can only imagine. If you were in that crowd, if you were that close to Jesus, if you saw those miracles up close, if things were different for you today, 
perhaps that would be it. Perhaps that's what you need. Perhaps they would be signs for you. But these signs, these words, and this story is there for you. Men and women who witnessed these miracles, this man's death and his resurrection, shared those stories, wrote those things down, and some of them even gave their lives because they believed these things to be true. We can argue about their credibility, their history, their culture, and we should. We are encouraged to do so. John's purpose in writing is to present the case for Jesus to you. You can be unpersuaded, you can be unconvinced. But you cannot be unimpressed that the death of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago and the claims of him and his followers that he was raised from the dead started a movement that brought you into this room today. Something happened. None of us are born into this faith. We have to examine it for ourselves because we don't just have these words. We don't just have these stories and this text. God comes to meet with us, each of us, wherever we are, whether we come weeping or in worship, with a confession of faith or with a complaint. Elsewhere in the gospel, John writes at length about the Holy Spirit, about the very essence of Jesus being present with us today, his empowering, encouraging, comforting presence, as though the lead actor in this drama and the divine author of this text is here with us this morning. And the truth is, whether you're running towards him or coming to him slowly in despair, he calls all of us out of our graves. But you have to die first in order to be resurrected. Not at the end of our lives, but in the middle, because it is what happens here and now that matters most. So what about you? What does it mean for you to exchange your life for Jesus? It might cost you everything, but you will be exchanging death for life. Perhaps that's a choice that you have already made or one you need to make for the first time this morning. But for most of us, this is a choice that we make over and over and over again. We are always coming back to Jesus. We always see him coming out to meet with us. Because to enter into a new kind of life, this kingdom kind of life, a spirit-filled kind of life, we have to die in order to be resurrected. The kind of life that we get to experience is one that we read about in the New Testament. And it is not free of pain and suffering. That was never the promise. But it is about learning how to live in the company of Jesus. Because the one who raised him from the dead will fill you with his spirit and enable you to enter into this kind of life. So what if this man Jesus is the one that God said he was? And what if he is the one that you've been waiting for? Can I invite you to stand? Can I have the band back? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.